One of um, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I read that book some years ago. I don't think it had a lot of effect. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very good book. Um, <laughs> I maybe should read it again sometime. <laughs> the first habit is be proactive. Maybe I should do it. <laughs> but the second habit is um, begin with the end in mind. And that's a, a great... Uh, great idea too, isn't it? Begin with the end in mind. The idea is that if we haven't given any thought to the future, we might focus our attention on things that are, are not that valuable at the expense of things that, that are really valuable. We're going to have a movie clip this morning. We've been looking at the blind side and you might remember if you've seen the movie, there's this big basketballer, big Mike, not basketball, gridiron player, big Mike, and uh, there's a little guy in the family who he's been adopted into called SJ and SJ is encouraging him um, and he's encouraging him to be a great sportsman. And there's one stage where he's getting him to train and, and the, before they do that, he stands in front of him and he says, why don't we just go and play video games? And this is Big Mike. As if, you know, all this training, uh, why don't we just go and play video games? And you can just, uh, as the movie goes on, you can imagine what he would have missed out on if he hadn't trained and used his talents as a professional footballer. And so little SJ was there to spur him on and remind him that he was part of the Tui family and people in the Tui family knew who they were and they knew they were going somewhere. There's a fantastic line that you can't, you're not going to hear today, but this recruiter comes in uh, to recruit um, Michael and uh, he makes the comment, you know, you could see how, how could Big Mike fail with a, with, with a little uh, manager like SJ who's uh, cheering for him all the time. And the, uh, the recruiter says, um, he, sure know, he sure knows how to pepper the, pepper the gumbo. <laughs> and I'm, he sure knows how to pepper the gumbo. And I, I'm thinking, about it, what on earth does that mean? But it, you sort of guess, well, guess what it means, that SJ is this little guy who's really working hard to get the best deal for Big Mike. And he sure knows how to pepper the gumbo. Well, you look it up in, in uh, on Google, and uh, it doesn't tell you doesn't tell you much about what it means. But gumbo was this uh, Louisiana in Louisiana. They have this massive sort of stewy thing called gumbo, and uh, peppering the gumbo. It had a lot of pepper and onions and whole chickens and all sorts of stuff in this big stew. And uh, anyway, SJ SJ really knew how to pepper the gumbo. But that aside, SJ believed that the best was yet to come for Michael O'Hare. And uh, how could Big Mike fail with all those people on his team uh, going for it? So we've been looking, as Troy said, at four convictions that changed the world. And uh, we're up to number three today. And it's a conviction about the, the future. The best is yet to come. These convictions came from a guy called Paul, and he's writing a letter to a church at a place called Ephesus. And these are part of that letter. He's writing from prison but he wants his, the people he's writing to to totally grab hold of the fact that if they really believe these things to the core of their being, it'll change their world, it'll change their lives. And so the first uh, one Troy spoke to us about was God is good. The first conviction, God is good. And we had these amazing uh, words in the first chapter of uh, Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 10, that uh, we're chosen if we're followers of Jesus, we're adopted, we're forgiven. And we're, we're blessed with every blessing that God could give us. So God is good, and God is good to us. And the second one was, I know who I truly am. And Yvonne talked to us about her, her background of adoption and uh, this sense of being adopted and being brought into a family and actually receiving all the benefits that come from being a part of that family. An inheritance 
um, and privileges. We're marked, it says we're sealed, we're marked with the Holy Spirit. We receive God's Holy Spirit if we're followers of Jesus and he empowers us to live the way we should. And it marks us out as ones who are in the family who receive the inheritance. So Paul wanted these early followers not just to realise that God is good, not just to understand who they truly were, but to also know that the best was still ahead of them, even beyond the grave. And history would suggest that the early followers of Jesus actually got that. They really understood that. There was a, uh, a guy called Lucian. Some of you might have read some of Lucian's stuff. He, he, he wrote in the uh, second century. He was a satirist. He was from Syria. Lucian the satirist from Syria. And uh, in about 190, he wrote this thing called The Death of Peregrinus. And now it seems like Peregrinus was a bit of a, a, uh, a guy who tried to dupe Christians. Um, but this uh, Death of Peregrinus as an article is significant in that it actually um, gives us some insight into what a non-Christian thought about early Christians. And I'll, I'll just read the quote to you. It was going to be on the screen. But it said this, The poor fools, that's the Christians, have persuaded themselves above all that they are immortal and will live forever, from which it follows that they despise death and many of them willingly undergo imprisonment. Moreover, their first lawgiver taught them that they are all brothers of one another. Once they've sinned by denying the Greek gods and by worshipping that crucified sophist himself and living according to his laws. But this idea that they, they actually believe they're going to be, they're immortal, they'll, they'll live forever. And, you know, these early followers, they actually did shape their world. They held their convictions so strongly and they lived in the light of them that in times of disease and epidemic and in the, the 250 years or so, um, after the rule of Nero and the persecutions associated with that, they went where others feared to tread, where places where, where people wouldn't go because of disease and, and uh, violence and all those sort of things because they had no, no fear of death. They had a hope that was worth living for and if need be, they believed it was worth dying for. They lived their convictions so strongly that it's, uh, it's estimated that by in the 300s AD... Um, one in two people in the Roman Empire identified as Christ followers. And, and Paul, in another letter about himself, wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This sense that my life is worth something, but I don't mind if I die because I know where I'm going. So if this conviction is about the future, for all of us it begs the question, what happens when we die? That's a question... People probably ask internally, but we don't verbalise it too often, do we? People at large, you know, believe lots of different things about what happens when people die. Some people believe that we're just gone. It's all over. It's just finished. When you die, you die. When you're gone, you're gone. And it's a really neat, clean, tidy approach, isn't it? My life's over. But it sort of doesn't satisfy uh, us as an account of of human destiny, does it? For most of us, there's this nagging, nagging suspicion that this life isn't all there is. Now, other people believe that we're gone, but we're not really gone. And you, you'll hear this in, in uh, you know, popular conversation. Even at funerals, you'll hear it. It's, this, it's not, not just the idea of reincarnation, the Hindu-type reincarnation, but that it's like a New Age idea that at death you're sort of absorbed somehow into the wider world, into the wind and into the trees. You hear people read poems about this sort of stuff and hear it quoted at funerals. So we're gone, but we're not really gone. 
Um, others believe that we're gone, but we're contactable. I had a conversation with someone the other day in my street uh, who told me that their daughter has this real spiritual sense that grandma who's just died, when she's looking for a, a parking spot in the rain and she prays that it won't rain, somehow grandma comes good for her and as soon as she gets out of the car, the rain stops because her hair's just been done. It was, it was all good because grandma is there. She's talking to grandma and grandma's answering. And so we're gone, but, but we're con- contactable. But, you know, if you ask the majority of people, they'd say that when we die, we go to a better place. We go to a better place. Nearly 60% of Australians say that they believe in a heaven. But we tend to, to shape our ideas of the afterlife on popular, sentimental sort of notions of heaven, don't we? Or on what we say were our best experiences on earth. And so we make heaven in our own image. You know, for a golfer, it's the eternal golf course. For a surfer, it's the big wave. For the um, person who loves holidays, it's the ultimate holiday. For those who love fishing, it's the everlasting fishing trip um, in Scotland. Uh, (laughs) For those of us who like crosswords, it's uh, crossword puzzles that just go on forever and that we can solve without looking up the Google. Okay, But we make heaven, don't we, in our own image. And often I think people make up their own ideas about how we get into that heaven. But whatever we believe, we don't seem to talk about it that much, do we? We live in such a material world that we, we've lost a perspective on eternity. We just go on as if this is all that there is. But what if there is an afterlife that actually stretches to eternity? Someone said that it would make our current age and our current life look like an infinitesimal blip on the cosmic timeline. So here we are and there's the timeline. Or it seemed like just the clearing of our throat before we sing a song that never stops. So what does Paul say in his letter? I want to read it to you. If you've got your uh, phones, it's in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 15 to 23. That's the passage we're looking at today. But I'll read it. It would have been on the screen, so you're going to really have to concentrate this morning and listen. Because of all this, because of what's gone before, all the things we've heard about in the last two weeks, because of all this, Paul says, and because I'd heard that you're loyal and faithful to Jesus the Master and that you show love to all God's holy people, I never stopped giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of King Jesus our Lord, the Father of glory, would give you in your spirit the gift of being wise, of seeing things people can't normally see because you're coming to know him and to have the eyes of your inmost self open to God's light. So before he talks about the future and their hope, he prays that they'll see things that people can't normally see because they've come to know Jesus and they're coming to know him more and more and when their eyes begin to be open to God's light, they'll know things. And so he's really praying for this uh, ability for them to actually discern what God would want them to know, to see things and know things that other people don't know. And then he goes on. If that prayer is answered, he says, then you will know exactly what the hope is that goes with God's call. You'll know the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in his holy people and you'll know the outstanding greatness of his power towards us who are loyal to him in faith according to the working of his strength and power. So three things you're going to know, he says. You're going to know the hope that goes with God's call. You're going to know the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance and you're going to know the, going to know the greatness 
of God's power. Three things that he desperately wants them to get hold of because they're going to be life-changing things and they're going to give some insight into the fact that the best is yet to come. So let's look at them first. The hope that goes with God's call. What does that mean? The hope that goes with God's call. Well, I think we have a little bit of an understanding of what God's call on them was. God's call was to, to follow, to live a life under the authority of Jesus as king and to be empowered then by God's Holy Spirit to live that life. And you know, sometimes we talk about how the kingdom of God came in Jesus, but it, there's a sense in which it's come already, but it's, it's not come completely. So there's this already sense and there's the not yet sense. And so in this phrase, the hope that goes with God's call, we've got the already sense in that God's called, he's asked people to follow, but there's a hope associated with that and the, the ultimate fulfilment of that hope is not yet. See, when we see the word hope in English, we, uh, we're really confused by it, aren't we? Because it doesn't seem like the sort of hope we're reading about here. Because when we think of hope, we think of wishful thinking, really, don't we? Um, it's probably the closest to the way we use the word hope in English today. It's when I desire something really, really mu- a lot, but I don't have any real assurance that I'm going to get it. I really hope the weather's fine for my holidays. I hope my team wins this afternoon. But often when I say, I hope so, I'm really expressing this veiled pessimism about whether it will happen or not. And yet hope in the Bible is so different. It's an indication of certainty. It's a strong, confident expectation, the certainty that what God has promised is true and it will come to pass just as God has said. And so the hope associated with God's call is this not yet bit. The call is already, but the not yet bit, it's the future the certain hope that one day Jesus will return, the kingdom will come in all its fullness, God will put everything right in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Paul is wanting to assure them that this is true. I want you to understand the hope that goes with God's calling. This is for real, he's saying to them. So that's the first little phrase. The second is the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance. And if, if the first phrase is about being assured, this, this phrase is really uh, about understanding the scope of the hope. It's the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance. It's almost as if um, Paul can't find words to express how great is this inheritance. Cindy last week talked about inheritance in, in the verses 11 to 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. And in that that little passage, it seems like the inheritance is what God wants to bless us with, the inheritance, all that it means to be associated with God as our Father, uh, all that it means, that, all that that means for now and the future. In this little passage, it's almost like it's the other way around. It's as if God sees us as His inheritance. God sees us as being of infinite value to Him, and I like those two things together. And I think it's nice to be able to think of it in that way. That, in a sense, God gives us. <coughs> an amazing inheritance and yet in, a, in a, another uh, way that's pretty special, God sees us too as being uh, such a treasure that we're an inheritance to him. What is our inheritance? It's a new heaven and a new earth. We're like heirs. I wonder what pictures come up in your mind when you think of heaven. I think we've got strange ideas in our heads, you know, pearly gates and clouds and harps and forever just singing old hymns and 
C.S. Lewis says that he, he didn't really like the idea of heaven when he sort of thought about some of those uh, images that we have. You know, I think we need to remember that the, the biblical images of heaven are just that, they're images, um, metaphors, symbols that tell us something uh, quite profound about what heaven is. But if we take them too literally, we'll have all sorts of weird ideas in our heads about um, what heaven is. But I think they point to some things, really significant things about heaven. I think they say very clearly to us that heaven is a place of beauty. Heaven's going to be a place of happiness. And heaven's going to be a place of wholeness. The Bible talks about a new earth. Often I think we've associated heaven as so different from this earth and yet God, the Bible talks about a, a renewed earth, a recreated earth, an earth as it, as it was always intended to be. We have creation and we have a new creation. The Bible actually refers to it as, as being like home. And uh, I don't know when you've been, holidays are great, but it's always great to come home, isn't it? And uh, when we've been through something difficult or we've been out in the cold or whatever, Coming home is just a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Heaven is like a home. There's going to be a God who we love, who we can worship. There's going to be a universe to rule, Paul says. There's going to be purposeful work. There's going to be endless fascination, no boredom. All that is broken, restored, perfected, joy, pleasure. You get the picture. It's... It's the best, and it's yet to come. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his, I think it's his last book in the Narnia series, The Last Battle, there's some beautiful little excerpts in there, and I wanted to use a couple today, but I'll only just use one. Um, and he describes it a little bit like this. He says, perhaps you'll get some idea of, it if you, idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room... On the other side, there's a mirror. And the sea in the mirror, or the valley in the mirror, were in one sense just the same as the real ones outside. And yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you've never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked like it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia so much is because it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. Profound. So, there's the hope that goes with God's call. There's the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance. And then Paul wants them to know the greatness of God's power. And he goes on again with... with, uh, a number of, of words to express just how great is God's power. And for the follower of Jesus, God's power is available, not just for life now, but it's also the same power, it says, that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that guarantees that we will also be raised, that we'll have renewed bodies in a new creation, a whole new creation. So I was talking to Troy this week and he says to me, when you're doing this talk, 
you better tell them about what that actually means to you. That's, that's, that's getting a bit personal, isn't it? Does this, what does this mean to me? What does it mean when I tell you that I believe the best is yet to come for a follower of Jesus? That made me think. We could go on and on about that. But I wrote down a few things. One of them, I think, is... Uh, I think an understanding of this, for me, comes with a profound awareness that the way, the way the world is is not the way it's supposed to be. But God has placed me here as his child um, to bring, in whatever little way I can, some glimpses of heaven, to bring, as we would say, his kingdom uh, a little bit, little by little, here on earth. Uh, N.T. Wright, who Troy's going to uh, study with, has uh, written a book called Surprised by Hope, and he expands on, on this uh, most magnificently, that nothing we, nothing we do in this life is wasted into the next. Um, I, I think that's a fantastic thought. And so everything you do, and you think, okay, that didn't count for something, God says it actually counts for something in the, uh, in the future. Nothing's wasted. There's a verse in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. And uh, that's an incredible thing to remember, isn't it? That whatever we do as followers of Jesus actually counts for something, not now, but for all eternity. The other thing I think I've been learning, and I'm not too good because I still go to Bunnings and Aldi every now and then, and down that centre line in Aldi still has attraction for me. Um, but I think I'm learning to hold more loosely um, to material stuff it's nice but it's also distracting isn't it one of my relatives used to have a little slogan on the kitchen uh, well only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last and I think I, I go through life hopefully more and more with this understanding that there are certain things that matter and there's certain things that don't. Um, and uh, in a, an incredibly material world, there's, there's some things that we could do to have a little less of, and I think I'm realising that. I'm also learning to appreciate beauty perhaps uh, more, and maybe this comes with the idea that there's a continuity, that God has made a beautiful world, and we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth and a recreated earth. So there's no, this, this earth is a most magnificent place, and uh, God is going to recreate it as it was always intended to be. And so when I have a new grandchild, um, like little Arietta who is here today, um, I can just appreciate in new ways God's amazing creation. When I go out into the outdoors and, and uh, I'm captivated by the beauty of what God has made, I sense the, the wonder of this earth and what the new earth might be like. I also think uh, that I'm learning, and I'm not as good as my wife at this, but actually to be in the moment more, and to enjoy the moments of happiness and uh, joy that come my way. You know, I think we can live our lives, if we're not careful, realising that happiness and joy are pretty transient, and, OK, I can be joyful now and extremely happy now, but tomorrow might be different because something might happen. Um, that's the reality of life, isn't it? And uh, so to be able to live with joy and with sadness, um, realising that one day that'll all, be, that'll all be done away, I think also I'm learning to affirm uh, anything that I see in people, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, that reflects something of the image of God. 
um, because God is at work in amazing ways in our world and I think we need to be uh, aware of that. Ultimately, for me, Jesus conquered death. Um, He took away its sting and I sense something of the victory of that. I've been to a, a couple of funerals recently of followers of Jesus and they've been sad but there's also been this sense of victory, confidence that that person knew that the best was yet to be and they were going somewhere. And so that confidence that uh, Jesus said, where I am, there you'll be also, uh, is something that I think I've been able to carry with me. Life's uh, short, it's unpredictable, uh, but I could say with confidence that I know who holds the future. And as the old song used to go, and I know he holds my hand. The band's going to come up in a moment. And um, as we close, I just wanted to reflect on something. Often we, we, we do something amazing and uh, we go somewhere amazing and we say, it doesn't get any better than this, does it? You done, ever said that lately? Go on a great holiday to Port Douglas, sit on that beach, look out there and you say, it doesn't get any better than this. Um, or you see a, a brilliant sunset on a warm day or you have a magnificent family time together and you laugh and you have good friends around, good conversation, a warm fire. And yet, as I said before, we, we live with the realisation that these times are fleeting, The tragedy could descend like a cloud, that dreams could be shattered, that relationships could be broken and there's an uneasiness in this world about even our very best experiences. For the follower of Jesus, the truth is that it can get far, far better than this, and it will. The most ordinary moments on the new earth, heaven, will be greater than the most perfect moments in this life. I think we need to hold on to that. God has a place for us that's beyond our imagination. Hear the words of John, which would have been on the screen. The last chapter of the Bible, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So as we uh, have this final song, it's a beautiful song, Good, Good Father. I want you to think, and maybe I want you to pray. Maybe you thought about that prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians and you just need to know, uh, you need to discern what actually really does matter, what you really do think about these things. You need to discern and ask God to speak into your life and open uh, your heart and your life to his light. But I want you to ask yourself, do you know? Do you know the hope that goes with God's call? Do you know the wealth of the glory of his inheritance? And do you know the outstanding greatness of God's power? Great questions for all of us to reflect on this morning.